Morning, everyone. Good to see you. Pastor Devian, can we turn the light on over here, please? The light of the world is... The light of the world is... Oh, you, you got a... We didn't pay the electric bill. Oh, well, okay. He's gone to put a, some money in the, in the machine. The light of the world. Well, we'll find out. Oh, there. The light of the world is Jesus. I think I'm going to raise this up a bit here. There we are. Well, uh, would you all open your Bible, please, to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Joshua, chapter 1. Open up the Word of God. Now, students of Pacific West Baptist College, you are to be congratulated. Yes, you are. Some of you, this is your first semester, and you've successfully finished one half of the year. And for some others of you, you've been here before, and you're to be congratulated for having come so far. Now, at the beginning of each semester, it's uh, kind of normal for the work to be piled on top of you, higher than what you can reach. That's normal. It's a normal feeling if you have this sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. This is too much. How am I ever going to do it all? Um, you can feel a bit overwhelmed, but over the course of September, October, November, December, with a little dedication and a little hard work on your part, and the Lord sees this and he adds his blessing and somehow things seem to get done. And we praise the Lord for that. Now, if we had to bring it down to a formula, I guess we could say you thought about it. You made certain decisions and then you took certain actions to follow up those decisions, sort of a, a three-part formula. And what happened? You succeeded. So today's Wednesday, and I think you're done your test, your exams for today. Is that right? No one has any more, do they? No? Okay, well, then there's Thursday, and then there's Friday. And then it's done. It's all over. The first semester is gone. Um, you have obeyed the Lord, and obedience to God always pays off. It always does. Never underestimate the power of obedience. So this is um, my privilege to preach this chapel today. I get to preach twice in chapel, the beginning and the end. I'm like the bookends on the chapels. And so it's my joy to bring you the message today. Let's have a word of prayer before we continue. Our loving heavenly father, we ask that you would please add your blessing now to this chapel hour and speak with our hearts and encourage us. I thank you so much for the students and I love them. They're in my heart and I pray for them daily. And I ask you, dear father, God, to keep your good hand of blessing and protection upon them. Father, we thank you. That as a Bible college now, we've come seven and a half years. And that's hard to believe how the time has just zipped right past. And yet it's true. In a few months, we'll have finished up eight full years of service. Lord, we thank you so very much. And we've seen a lot of blessings because of the Bible college. Our Father, help us to not just finish Bible college, but to finish our lives strong. That happy day when you blow the trumpet, and send Jesus to scoop us all up. That happy day may be closer than we think. It may not be 40 years down the road, 
Maybe it'll be 40 months or 40 days. But whatever it is, help us to be faithful to you. And that way we can be a success. And so with that thought in mind, dear Lord, bless us as we study the word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to encourage you today on the the power of obedience to God. Now you've got your Bible open there in Joshua chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read in just a moment uh, about uh, Joshua, some things here about Joshua. But before we do, I want to tell you uh, an interesting story of a friend of mine who's now in heaven. I met him back in the 1970s and his name was Colonel Jack McGuckin. And he was an evangelist. Um, However, uh, when World War II broke out, he was just um, an unsaved teenager, just itching to uh, get in the fight. And so he lied about his age or he lied about something or he lied to someone. Anyhow, he got in. And so he's just a, a little on the shorter side, but that doesn't matter. Maybe he lied about his height. I don't know. But anyhow, he got in. And he got in flying planes, these World War II planes. And so um, he ended up with a squadron called the Black Sheep Squadron in World War II. And uh, they, they sort of developed a bit of a name for themselves. They were a, a bunch of misfits, really, that I guess the United States Marine Corps didn't know what to do with. So they stuck them all together and they put one misfit in charge. His name was Pappy Boyington. And he was a bit of an oddball. These guys were strange and they would party all night. And then they'd get up at four in the morning or something to fly out over the Pacific looking for enemy, uh, uh, enemy planes and enemy ships. And what Pappy Boyington, according, I got all this from McGuckin. I be, he became a friend of mine in the 1970s. That's when I met him. And man, I would just sit and listen to some of his stories. But one thing he told me was that they were pretty crazy and whacked back then in the war and they didn't really care much. They figured they were going to die. So they just partied. And uh, in order to stay awake at four in the morning, at least Pappy Boyington would anyhow, he'd pull his eyelid down. He'd put a little pinch of tobacco under each eyelid there. And somehow that would burn and would keep his eyes from closing and falling asleep. And that's how he was out there flying. And I think some of the other guys did that gives you an idea of the kind of guys these were. And uh, anyhow, he, uh, he flew and had some wild experiences. He later wrote a book, sort of an autobiography, and it's called Split Second from Hell. And I was looking for the book on my library shelf, but I couldn't find it. So I may have loaned it to someone, but uh, you can still get it off of Amazon. It is a really good read. You read about his life and the exploits and things he went through. It's just like it was one disaster, one crazy thing to the next, the way he tells it anyhow. Well, in the 1950s, he uh, still wasn't saved. He got saved late in the late 50s or early 60s. And uh, so he still wasn't saved. And he trained these four young rookie pilots that came in from Brazil, these uh, young little lieutenants. And he was a colonel um, or lieutenant colonel. And so he trained them how to fly planes and dive bomb and things like that. And he was shaking his head. And he thought that these guys are never going to get it. They're never going to learn, but somehow they did manage to learn and off they went back down to Brazil. So years go by Jack McGuckin gets saved. Um, then the Lord calls him 
into full-time ministry. And so he ends up using his talents as a pilot, as a missionary pilot down in Brazil. And so he gets down into Brazil and you know that missionaries, when they get to uh, foreign countries, there's a lot of red tape, government paperwork and things. And so he was, um, he was trying to go from office to office. Try, he had to get a, uh, some kind of medical. He had to get an eye uh, exam as well. And there's a few other things he had to get. And so he's confused and he's got this paperwork and he's wandering the hallways in the big government office there trying to get all this stuff done when all of a sudden around the corner, boom, he bumps into a five-star general and he looks at the guy and the guy looks at him and they recognize each other. And the, and the Colonel says, McGuckin, is that you? This was one of the rookie pilots that he trained years ago in the fifties. And now he's a general, a five-star general. And he said, uh, yeah, it's me. So they, they just uh, gave some small talk and the general says, well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm now a missionary pilot and I've got to get all of this stuff done. And then he said, McGuckin, he said in Brazil, one does not go to doctors. One calls doctors to themselves. Come with me. And so they, he follows him into his office. And he goes behind his desk and he picks up the phone. He starts barking a bunch of orders in Spanish and click. And then, you know, within moments, the door opens and uh, in comes um, a medical doctor and uh, looks at his paperwork and, you know, hits him. He's fine. Check. There you are, sir. Off he goes. An eye doctor comes in, looks at his paperwork, looks him in the face, says uno, dos, check. And off he goes. And he just like that, he was able to get all of the, the paperwork done. And the point is that military people all know the power of obedience. Military people, they all know that. And that's how they live their lives, right? Well, we're not military people like that per se. Now, Joshua was a military man. And here in Joshua chapter one, the Lord starts talking to him. And let's see in verse five, God says, there shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Wow. That sounds pretty good right there, doesn't it? But God goes on and he encourages them be strong and of a good courage for unto this people, thou shalt divide for an inheritance, the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. And then he goes back verse seven, only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant commanded thee, turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. So it's almost like military obedience here. Now, verse eight, read it out loud with me together. I want you to help me here and read it out the best you can with those uh, pieces of cloth on your face. Do the best you can. Here we go. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. And again, he tells Joshua to be strong and of a good courage in verse nine. And so um, Joshua being a military man, knowing the power of obedience decides he's going to obey God and God told him what to do. And he did it and he became highly successful. You know, the story of, 
of Joshua. And years go by, something like 20 years goes by. Joshua started the job. He took the post at 80 years of age. And by 120, no, by 100, sorry, by 100 years of age, I think his job is just about done, or at least his life is. And if you go to chapter 24, Joshua 24, we have here his famous words that he gave before he died. He gave these, this speech, if you will, and he gave it to the people. Joshua 24 and verse 15. Let's read that out loud as well, shall we? And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's a famous, famous Bible verse, isn't it? Many of us have those words emblazoned on plaques and pictures up on the walls of our houses. You know, when people walk into your house, they ought to see that. So, well, I don't own a house. Well, do you have a bedroom? Put it up on the wall of your bedroom. How about that? Um, it's not just military men like Joshua who knew the power of obedience, but ordinary everyday Christian believers, just like us knew the power of obedience. Now, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was born again. She's in heaven, right? Uh, we don't pray to her. One day we're going to talk with her. When we see her, we're going to sit down with her and say, what was it like? And she's going to tell us. But um, she knew the power of obedience. I'll show you. Turn to John, Gospel of John. And we'll go to chapter two. All right. John chapter two. We have the wedding at Cana, Cana of Galilee in verse one. And of course, verse two, Jesus was called and his disciples. Verse three. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, that's unto Jesus. They have no wine. Verse four, Jesus saith unto her woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now watch verse five. In fact, I want you to read it out loud with me, please. Here we go. Here's the power of obedience. His say it with me. Now. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now that also is a very famous verse of scripture. And many Christians have taken that verse right there in John two chapter two, verse five as their life verse whatsoever he saith unto the, un, unto the, unto you do it. And that is the power of obedience. Cause you know, this, the story that followed Jesus said to the servants, well, fill these six stone water pots here with water. And so whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. So they did it. And they filled it all up to the brim. Now dip out some of the water and go give it to the governor of the feast. They did it. And somewhere in there, the water turned into wine and it was really good grape juice. I don't believe it was alcoholic. I don't believe that uh, at all. There's uh, this is not the time and place to do a, a study on the Bible and alcoholic beverages, but 
we have a good book uh, in the library there. And maybe there's two or three copies of it left. And every one of you ought to own a copy of that on the, the Bible and uh, wine and fermented wines. It is the exhaustive source to go to. A lot of Christians today are saying, well, it's all right to drink. We can drink. We have, we're not under law. We're under grace. We can go into a liquor store or a pub or something, and we can drink as long as we don't get drunk. And that was one of the most stupid arguments that really would not hold up in court at all. Not at all. You take one drink and the alcohol's in your, your blood. It's already in there. So there were two kinds of wine. There was the unfermented and the fermented, and it was all called wine. And the Lord Jesus, the last thing he was about to do was to make a bunch of people drunk. He wasn't going to do that. So anyhow, we're not here to talk about that, but we are here to talk about the power of obedience because this was a great miracle. Apparently the first miracle um, that Jesus um, uh, accomplished here, the power of obedience to God is the power to live a remarkable life. You know, a lot of people don't see that half, that last half of the statement. All they hear is obedience to God. And they think, Oh, I grew up having to obey this person and that person. And then I got a boss at work. I hate, but I got to obey my boss. And now I got to obey God. And they just lump it all into the same category. And that's a huge mistake. I agree. Your boss at work is a nerd and probably should have been fired and replaced with a real human being. But it is what it is. But obedience to God results in a remarkable life. Joshua rendered obedience to God and had a remarkable life. The servants, personally, I kind of think that the servants kept talking about that miracle after it happened. They, they would talk amongst themselves. Did you see that? Do you remember that? Hey, do you remember a few weeks ago? Do you remember a few months ago? Do you remember a few years ago when Jesus turned the water into wine? They all, they had a story to tell something that they never forgot. That was only just one small little snippet imagine obeying Jesus on a regular basis? That's what I'm talking about today. It results in a remarkable life. You want to ruin your life? Just go out and do your thing. You want a horrible life? You want to get to the end of your life and look back and say, what a waste. Man, did I ever, I'm a loser. Just go out today and just do your thing. But if you want a remarkable life that you will never regret, even on your deathbed, and especially when you stand before Jesus Christ, you will never regret is living your life for God, rendering obedience to God. It results in a remarkable life. Now, I wouldn't say that if, if it wasn't true. Uh, in this coming April, I will have been saved, born again for 46 years. 46 years. And I've done my best to live for God those 46 years. Have I been 100% successful? I wish I could say yes. But there has been once or twice where I didn't obey the Lord. But I can tell you from experience and from the scripture, obedience to God results in a remarkable life. You know, if I, if I had my life to do over again, I'd obey the Lord. I would. I would obey the Lord. If I had a hundred lives, I would do the same thing. Now, it gets down to that formula, I suppose, that I mentioned earlier. It depends on the thoughts you think. It depends on the decisions you make. And it depends on the actions you take to follow up on those decisions. 
See, it's not enough just to decide. All right, the decision's been made. Now what? Well, now we do something about it. So you, it, it, you think about it. It starts with the thoughts. And then the decisions. And then the actions to follow up on those decisions. You have to have those three. You see, it's not the dreamers who are the movers and shakers in this world. It's not the dreamers who get things done. It's the doers that get things done. Those are the ones. That's why I think uh, God tells us in James 1:22, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. And Oh, you know, if the devil can't deceive you, he'll try and get a friend to deceive you. If he can't get a friend to deceive you, he'll try and get you to deceive yourself. I think there's a lot of self deceived people out there. Teddy Roosevelt. How many have ever heard of Teddy Roosevelt? Raise your hand. Teddy Roosevelt. Hey. Yeah. All right. Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. And I think you raised your hand to you. Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. He was the 26th president of the United States. He served from 1901 to 1909. So about eight years, two terms as president of the United States. However, it was after he was defeated and the next president came in. It was in 1910 after he was president. He's now ex president that he made what many consider to be the greatest speech of his career of his whole life. The greatest speech was not made while he was president. It came after. Now don't think that's strange because one day God willing, if you become 65 years of age, you're going to have accumulated 65 years of experience in life and you will have something to say. You'll be able to say, Hey, listen, don't do this. I tried it. It doesn't work. Hey, listen, try this, do this. It works. Teddy Roosevelt now in 1910 made what many consider the greatest speech of his life. And the title of the speech was the man in the arena, the man in the arena. And you can check that out later if you want. It's a very interesting speech, but I'm going to read for you one little excerpt of his speech. Now his speech was designed to encourage people to be the best they can be. I'm going to read this for you. Listen carefully. Here's a small part of, small part of his speech. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of the deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions who spends himself in a worthy cause who at the best knows in the end, the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Roosevelt was not talking to Christians that day. He was not talking to Bible college students that day. He was talking to people in general, but his speech, 
hits upon a common nerve in every one of us. Now listen again, what he says, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. So not the guy outside commentating, well, he should have done this. He should have done that. The credit goes to the guy in the arena. He says, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end, the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails with daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Did you hear what he said? those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. What Roosevelt was saying was do something great for your, with your life. You've got one life. That's all you've got. And it's a precious life. And if you, if you just sit on the sidelines and do nothing, you'll never know victory. You'll never know defeat, but you'll never know a worthy life. We have one life to live. And we have opportunity to live it for God. And I want to suggest to you again, obedience to God is the way to live a remarkable life. It's the best way you can live your life. Students at Pacific West Baptist college. I salute every one of you who wants to be different from the world, who wants to be different and live for God. I salute you. Possibly the best way of being different and living for God is to do things that other people refuse to do. Many Christians, believe it or not, refuse to have daily devotions. It's a habit you get into, but it's a good habit. It's one you'll never regret. Many Christians refuse to give out gospel tracts. It's a habit you get into. And it's one you'll never regret. Many Christians refuse to tithe or to give to missions. That's a nasty, bad habit. Tithing and giving to missions is a habit we get into and we do it by faith, but it doesn't take long before the blessings of God come and the peace in our heart. We know this is right. Like daily devotions and like giving out a gospel tract, being ready to be able to share your testimony when the time is right. These are good things. Many Christians are not even faithful to their local church. That's a shame. Do things that others refuse to do. If you want to live for God, if you want to have a remarkable life, look at what some other Christians are refusing to do and do those things. Do the things. Now the formula I gave you, it'll take number one. What's the first word? thought. Okay. It's going to take thought. And after you think about it, then it's going to take what? Say it. Decision. Decision. Okay, good. Now you've decided, but it doesn't end there. 
There's one more part of the formula. And what is it? Action. Action to follow up on those decisions. That's the winning formula. The best way to live a successful life is probably to stop worrying about what other people think. Stop worrying about what other people think. Um, You live your life for God. And if some people have a problem with it, there's nothing you can do about that. You explain the best you can, but you live your life for God. The best way to succeed, I think in life is to live for God. Now you may not be as well experienced as some others. You may think, Oh, well, I, I haven't been around the block many times. Matter of fact, I'm still working on my first run around the block. I mean, I don't have much experience. That may be true. You may think, well, I'm not as well funded as other people. Other people seem to have better cash flow than I do. And that may be true as well. You may face that for many years. You may think, well, I don't have many important friends that can, you know, open doors of opportunity for me. That may be true. You may kind of be all alone, as they say. You might think, well, I'm not very well talented. You know, I, I, I can't, I can't lead singing like some of the others. I can't sing like some of the others. I can't play musical instruments like some of the others. As the joke goes, they never even would call upon me to lead in silent prayer. I mean, that's how bad it was. And that may be true, but here's what else is true. You are able to do things that others refuse to do. You can do what others don't want to do. Back in the 80s, while pastoring, I had to work on the side to put bread on the table. So it's like a tent ministry, sort of, you know, we call it vocational or tent ministry, where the pastor or the missionary is working to make money to be able to feed the family, keep a roof over the head while ministering at the same time. And I did that for a number of years. And for me, the, uh, the, the tent making was appliance repair, fridge, stove, washer, dryer. And it didn't take me too long to realize that the other repairmen, they'd, they'd fix a fridge or a stove or a, a washing machine or a dryer, but not a dishwasher. They hated dishwashers. Say, why would they hate dishwashers? Well, I soon found out. Because dishwashers take all of the junk and the grunge and the mold and the, um, the termites and everything off the plates and the rotten food and all that mixes it all up. And there remains in the bottom of the dishwasher and in the piping of it, the grunge. They didn't want to work on dishwashers because it was grungy to work on. Also, number two, it's kind of hard to get on your side and work. In, in this cramped area. And so a lot of repairmen just, you know, when the phone would ring, oh, I got a dishwasher. Oh, sorry. Can't help you. And they'd hang up. So I decided I'll take those jobs. And every time a dishwasher job was available, I took it. And you know something, the Lord blessed that. And I actually made a good deal of money doing dishwasher repair. Now I did other things as well, but I did what others didn't want to do. And you will find that that's true through life. You're going to run into someone and they're 
very successful. Maybe they got a lot of money. You know, I'm talking worldly success. And when you dig a little into how they got that way, you'll find out that they had no talents. So they started as a dishwasher in a restaurant and they worked hard and they asked questions and they saved their money and they kept washing dishes and they became good at it. And then there was an opportunity for them to, to start learning some cooking skills and the chef there was willing to teach them. And so, because the chef saw what a good worker. And so they started learning cooking skills. And then the day came when they were hired on as an assistant chef, assistant cook. The day came when the real main cook moved on and this assistant now took over and now was the head cook. Kept saving his money and so on. Before you know it, he bought into the restaurant and became a partner. Then he bought out his partner and owned the whole restaurant. Then he got some financing and he went and opened another restaurant. Now he had two restaurants and then three restaurants and one day a string of restaurants. And then we look at him. We say, Oh, he's so lucky. He just fell off the boat and came up with fish in his pocket. He is just one of those lucky, lucky individuals. And the truth is that he did what others weren't willing to do. And that's how he came up through the ranks. So I think it's very important here that we grasp this concept. You can always do more than other people are willing to do. So even when everything seems to be stacked against you, by the way, have you ever heard of the Remington company? Remington, does that name ring a bell at all? I don't mean the rifles. I mean, things like uh, shavers and other little, uh, we call them appliances, little handheld appliances, the Remington company. At one point it was owned by a guy named Victor Kayam. He's dead now, but he wrote a couple of books. I read his books. They're very interesting. But um, something that, that he said in there is um, this very same principle. When he was working for another company before he bought the Remington company, he realized that he wasn't as smart. He wasn't as talented. He didn't have the charisma like many others in that big, big corporation. But what he decided he could do is outwork them. They'd work eight hour days. He'd work 12 hour days. You, you get the idea. And he came up through the ranks and was a vice president and him and two others were, you know, in the target hairs to become the CEO and they ended up choosing someone else. And so that's when he quit the company and ended up, you know, that's his, his story. But the point is he, uh, he worked his way up by outworking the others. So you, you may not have some brilliant abilities with your voice or your fingers, or you may not look like a, you know, a poster child or something, but you can outwork others. You can outlive them. There's some interesting stories about that, but the Bible calls it importunity. Importunity means you don't quit. You don't give up. You keep at it. It was importunity that kept Jacob wrestling with the angel all night until he got the blessing from God. It was importunity that kept the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanitish woman whose daughter was demon possessed. It was importunity that kept her after Jesus hounding after him after and after him until finally he gave up and he healed her daughter. 
and it's importunity that will get you across the finish line. It's importunity. It takes importunity to live for God. It takes importunity to walk with Jesus every day. Not, Oh, do I feel like living for God today or not? How do I feel? It's importunity. That's what you do. So I got to finish up here, but I want to encourage you with the power of obedience to God in this last chapel time. So Pacific West Baptist college students, you've done very well this semester. Enjoy your Christmas, New Year's break. Set your sights on finishing the spring semester. Be here for graduation. Graduation is going to be a fun time. We started together. Let's finish this together. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so very much for your promise to never leave us or forsake us. And that if we will render obedience to you, then indeed you will add your blessings to us. Father, that's probably the only reason why some of us are even here today because of obedience. We just wouldn't quit. We wouldn't give up. We just kept obeying you. And we're still here serving you and praising you today. We thank you for it. I pray your richest blessing on the students upon this week. Help them with their exams. Lord, help them do the best they can. I know there's a lot of people praying for them. And I thank you for that. Thank you for this Bible college. It's small, but that's okay. So is a diamond ring. That's very, very tiny, very small, but very precious indeed. Lord, help our, our lives to be like a pearl of great price in your eyes. Something that you would desire. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus name. Amen.